What's going on, guys? Welcome back to The Control Room. I'm your host, Esrael Johannes, and man, do we have some stats to go through from this last week. First, let's talk about the Mavs. They've won five of their previous six games, but lost their last two after Kyrie and Derek Lively II went down with injuries. So we're going to break down their stretch of their last four games where they finished one and three. For the Pelicans, they won four straight, but then they blew a massive lead to the Memphis Grizzlies and Job Morant. So what's causing these massive blown leads? We'll talk about that next. And then for the Thunder, Shea Gilgis-Alexander beat the Nuggets at the end of the game in Denver, and the Thunder will host both LA teams this week, and so we'll preview those matchups briefly. First, let's talk about some massive Maverick milestones. For Luka Doncic, he entered Wednesday with 9,922 career points, which is 70, 78 points shy of 10K. He also had a career best 11 straight 30 point games entering Wednesday, as well as nine straight 30 point, five rebound, five assist games, which ties the longest streak in NBA history. However, he only scored 28 points against the Clippers on Wednesday night. And so, although he is 50 points shy of 10K um, entering Thursday, both of the previously mentioned streaks have now been snapped. The Mavericks as a whole in the last four games have these results. December 14th versus Minnesota. They lost 119-101 to 101 on the road at, the, at Portland, December 16th was a win, 131-120. to 120. December 18th at Denver was a loss, 130-104. to 104. And then at home, December 20th against the Clippers was also a loss, 120-111. to 111. That first game of the four that I mentioned, the Timberwolves and the Mavericks, in this game, the Mavs shot 7 of 32, about 21.9% from three, and allowed 54 paint points. The Mavs never shot better than 33.3% from three in any quarter in this game. The Mavs are now one in seven this season when allowing 34% from three and 54 paint points. This also includes losses to Denver and the Clippers. They were out-rebounded by Minnesota 45-34. to Minnesota offensively out-rebounded Dallas 12-4. And it led to a 14-7 advantage for Minnesota in second-chance points. For Dallas, I had been constantly saying rebounding will lead to other categories that will give them advantages, and miscellaneous scoring seems to be another issue that the Mavs have in some of these losses. The bench in this game was outscored 56-25. to The Mavs allowed 25 free-throw attempts, although Minnesota only converted 17 of them. The Mavs shot seven fewer free throw attempts, so 16 of 18, a great percentage at 88.9%, but nowhere close in terms of attempts. The players that played well in this game were Luka with 39 points, shooting 15 of 27 from the floor, 7 of 7 from the stripe with 13 assists. Derek Lively, the second, scored 15 points on 7 of 9 shooting, 6 rebounds, 2 blocks. Dante Exum had 14 points on 5 of 6 shooting, 2 of 3 from 3. But you can't just have three players go off and hope to win. There were 
three players that struggled mightily, and Grant Williams was one of them with only five points on two of 11 shooting, one of seven from three. He had been on, on a bit of a cold streak. Derek Jones Jr. only had three points in this game, shot one of eight from the floor, one of six from three. Tim Hardaway Jr., who's been a leading sixth man of the year candidate, only had 10 points in this game, although he was in double figures. He shot 415 from the floor, 0 of 7 from 3. So that imbalance that led to Luca Lively and Exum, and then it wasn't just these three players that struggled or you know, those three players that played well, but those are six impact players, and if all of them are playing well, the Mavericks have a much better shot than if they weren't all playing well. So let's go to the game that they actually won. The Mavs played the Trailblazers in Portland again. This time, DeAndre Ayton played in this game. I did not clarify in the previous matchup that DeAndre Ayton missed that last game, and that's why the Mavs had so many points in the paint. This time around, not the same story. Luka, though, had 40 points on 15 of 28 shooting, 6 of 6 from the free throw line, another, another perfect night from the free throw line, 12 rebounds, 10 assists, and a steal his 34th career 40-point game, and his fifth this season, as well as his eighth career 40-point triple-double, and his second this season. For the Mavs as a team, they shot 32 of 50 from two, that's 64%, and 16 of 47 from three, 34%. They only allowed seven of 32, 21.9% from three, from Portland. So when Portland is shooting that poorly, well... You can just shoot the lights out on them, right? The Mavs also had 15 fast break points, had a plus 14 advantage in bench points, 52 to 38. And then the they were also outscored in the paint, though, 72 to 52. 72 is a big number. The Mavs are 1-2 this season when allowing 70-plus paint points. Last season, they had only allowed 70 paint points three times. The calendar year isn't over, and they've already allowed 73 times. So it's a bit worrisome. Now, this is the game that Derek Lively II tweaked his ankle, and he only played about five or so minutes. So that may have led to how the Mavs were struggling in their paint defense. But with him being out, now you've got to lean on the guys that are there to hopefully protect the paint better than you have whenever Lively wasn't on the floor. It's a tall order, but it's necessary because you can't survive when you're playing against teams that are in title contention and they drop 70 points in the paint. You just can't have that. So it's something that the Mavs have to look at as an area of improvement that they need. And they especially need Derek Lively back as soon as he's healthy. Now let's transition to the Mavs-Nuggets game in Denver. Dallas only had two double-digit scores in this game. That's kind of rare. It's about as rare as having eight of them in a game. Luka Doncic had 38 points on 13 of 24 shooting, 6 of 12 from 3, 11 rebounds, 8 assists, and Dante Exum had 11 points, 5 of 5 field goals, one of one from three, two assists. It's the first game of the season when Dallas has two or fewer double-digit scores. And all time, 
In franchise history, the Mavs are 16 and 63 when they have two or fewer double-digit scores. It's, it's just not going to get it done. The Mavs held Nikola Jokic to eight points, three of eight shooting. He had nine rebounds and seven assists and two steals, but the rest of the team, they ate. So the Denver Nuggets shot 49 of 87 from the floor, 56.3%. From two, it was 35 of 61, 57.4%. And then from three, 14 of 26, which was 53.8%. They also shot 18 of 22 from the free throw line, which gave them a massive advantage considering the Mavs shot an an abysmal 9 of 19, 47.4% from the free throw line. Denver also had multiple advantages in the miscellaneous categories, 62 to 34 in bench points, which considering Denver's bench hasn't been as good this season compared to last year, this was a bit of a surprise. In the paint, they outscored Dallas 60 to 48. On the fast break, they outscored Dallas 32 to 13. And then for combined steals and blocks, Denver had 11, Dallas had two. You knew where this game was going, basically. So that led to hopefully bouncing back against the Clippers at home. Paul George was not available. He's out due to an illness. And so you have to just deal with Kawhi Leonard, James Harden, and Russell Westbrook. Not hard, right? Yeah, we'll see about that. All right. In the first quarter, the Mavs scored 22 points on 8 of 22 shooting. Not great. 6 of 14 from 2, 2 of 8 from 3, 4 of 6 from the free throw line. The Clippers, on the flip side, scored 35 points on 11 of 21 shooting. 6 of 8 from 2, 5 of 13 from 3, 8 of 8 from the free throw line. So that 13-point disparity was reflected mainly in the shooting on the floor. In the second and third quarters, though, the Mavericks started to get on a roll. They just started slow, which is fine as long as you don't go all the way back. However, though, this run in the second and third quarters helped them take the lead in the fourth. So let's break down these middle two quarters. Across the second and third quarters in this game, the Mavs shot 23 of 52, 44.2%. From two, 15 of 27, 55.6%. That, that is efficient. And then 8 of 25 from 3, 32%. Not to the level that is their average, but more respectable than the 2 of 8 that they were shooting in the first quarter. Now, among that 8 of 25 from 3, this is where they really got hot. In the second quarter, they shot 7 of 13, which was 53.8% from 3. It just didn't seem to carry over into the third quarter or really the second half. And then they shot 7 of 10 from the free throw line, so they gave themselves more opportunities there. They also held the Clippers to 1 of 8 shooting from 3 in the third quarter. That'll help you get on a run. The Mavs committed only 1 turnover, while the Clippers committed 7. And then the Mavs ended up having a 10 to 2 advantage in points off turnovers. Miscellaneous categories starting to ring a bell, right? That's why I keep saying it over and over. But in the fourth quarter, the claw, Kawhi Leonard, took over this game, scored 10 points in the final frame alone on four of six shooting, 
and he finished the game with a game-high 30 points. The Clippers, as a team, shot 13 of 19, 68.4% in the fourth quarter. From two, 10 of 12, highly efficient. From three, three of seven, well above average. And they had a 20 to six advantage in the paint. That'll more than definitely ice the game in your favor. The Clippers finished with seven double-digit scores. Remember, I had just talked about how the Mavs only had two. You want to have numbers like five, six, seven, maybe even eight double-digit scores on your team to give yourself a better chance of winning. The Mavs, despite this, are five and two this season when allowing seven-plus double-digit scores. They started five and zero, oh, lost their last two. The two losses came in games where the Mavs were down 20 or more points and came back to take the lead. December 2nd against Oklahoma City in that thrilling finish where the Mavs went on a 30 to nothing run. And then this game against the Clippers. Last season, though, the Mavs were 3-9 and nine when allowing seven or more double-digit scores. So this seems to be a bit of an improvement, even though it's on their coming off of a loss in this category. The Clippers have been red hot entering this game. They came in with an an eight-game win streak. James Harden had been shooting about 48.9% from three going into this game um, along that entire streak. So they've seemed to figure it out, especially with Russell Westbrook going to the bench. And then even when he came onto the floor, as he was defending Luka, he was tight on his hip. He was basically denying Luka the ball so that Luka couldn't really run the offense. And that's what kind of stagnated them especially near the end of the first quarter. The Mavs couldn't get anything going. In this game, though, it went into clutch time. So the Mavs, because they lost, have now fallen to 9-3 and three in clutch games this season. Despite the loss, this ties their third-best 12-game start in the clutch in franchise history. The last time Dallas was 9-3 and three or better, the title year, 2010-2011, where they also went 9-3. and three. All of these losses now lead to defensive struggles that the Mavs have had, whether it's from blocks, rebounding, pick and rolls, so on and so forth. And the impact that Derek Lively II has already, even as a rookie, he accounts for 36 of 117 Mavs blocks, which is 30.8%. He leads the team in both total blocks and block average. And then he accounts for 178 of 1,134 Mavs rebounds. That's 15.7%. And he's second on the team in both average and totals behind Luka Doncic. So really, just like last season when the Mavs were going through a health struggle when they didn't have Josh Green, Maxi Kleba, Dorian Finney-Smith, their defense took a hit. In this same way, by not having Derek Lively the second and not having Josh Green out in the perimeter, the team is struggling defensively. And the next man up mentality just means you're going to have to work with the pieces you have. So they'll, ha- they'll have to figure out a way schematically to avoid these pitfalls that they've been having in this rough stretch in order to succeed in the future. And in minutes when they don't have Derek Lively on the floor. Now, the Mavs weren't the only ones to have some struggles. 
New Orleans was was on a four-game win streak, and then it got snapped by Memphis. So we're going to have to talk about that coming up next. Okay, let's talk about the New Orleans Pelicans and the Oklahoma City Thunder in their week eight. For the Pelicans, they won four straight before their game against Memphis. They won on December 11th versus Minnesota at home with a win of 121 to 107, followed by a win on the road at Washington, their second straight win in Washington on December 13th with a 142-122 win. And then they traveled to Charlotte December 15th and beat them 112 to 107. And they finished this road trip in San Antonio on December 17th and beat Victor Wimbanyama and the Spurs 146 to 110, including a three-point barrage by the likes we've almost never seen before because the Pelicans shot 22 of 42 from three in that game. And that's actually a franchise record. They made 11 of them in the first half. And then Zion Williamson. In his previous three games before Memphis, he missed the game at Washington since he sprained his ankle against Minnesota. He's averaged 24 points per game on 64.4% shooting. 70% from the free throw line, eight rebounds, three assists, and a steal. So he's improved from his season averages within this little stretch. And then during the four-game win streak, the Pelicans' three-point defense, which is a stat that I've been harping on for a little while now, has shown that their opponent three-point field goal percentage on three-point field goal attempts by the quarter In the first quarter was 25.7% on 8.8 attempts. Second in the NBA. The second quarter, this kind of bucks the trend from where they've been all season. It jumps to 37.9% on 7.3 attempts, which is 13th in the NBA. But if you look at the season in totality, the Pelicans are only allowing 28.5% from three on 10.3 attempts, and that is first in the NBA. So that still holds true. In the third quarter, though, everything goes out the window again because they allow 38.5% on 9.8 attempts, which is somehow 11th in the NBA. It just means that everyone seems to be having a hard time in the third quarter. And then for the Pelicans, in the fourth quarter, across this four-game win streak, they're allowing 42% from three on 12.5 attempts. 12.5 attempts, which is 25th in the NBA. So that begs the question, what did the Grizzlies do against them? Let's start with the second quarter, because this is when the Pels took the lead and made it massive to the point where the whole country thought that this game was over. This was broadcast nationally on TNT, so everyone had a chance to see this game. The Pelicans shot 13 of 19 68.4% from the floor, 8 of 11 from 2, 5 of 8 from 3, 8 of 9 from the free throw line. That's insane, right? Because 
when you juxtapose that to how the Grizzlies shot, the Grizzlies shot 7 of 22 from the floor, 5 of 12 from 2, and only 2 of 10 from 3. So their three-point shooting is similar to how the Pelicans normally defend their opponents across the entire season in the second quarter, where the Pelicans have the best three-point defense in the second quarter in the NBA. The Grizzlies also didn't attempt a free throw. So that's a credit to how the Pelicans were playing defense, not fouling, and being able to take advantage in points off turnovers because they had a 13 to 3 advantage in points off turnovers in the second quarter alone, an 18 to 3 advantage in the first half. The Pelicans also had a 5 nothing advantage in fast break points, and some of that has to do with the points off turnovers as well. But it was it was a benchmark for how the Pels can take the lead and hopefully ice the game from that point on. The Grizzlies Three-point field goal percentage by quarter, however, is showing the same trends that the Pelicans have defensively from three. Because in the first quarter, the Pels only, not the Pels, excuse me, the Grizzlies shot two of six. In the second quarter, they shot two of ten. In the third quarter, they shot three of eight. That's 37.5%. And then in the fourth quarter, they shot three of seven, which is 42.9%. This is the game where it really followed the Pelicans' season trends in three-point defense. And it came back to bite them because the Grizzlies scored 74 second-half points. That's the second-most points in any half by a Pelicans opponent this season. The most was 75 points in the second half from Denver on November 6th. The Pelicans are now 0-6 this season when allowing 70-plus points in either half. And since Zion joined the team after being drafted in 2019, the Pelicans are 4 and 49. How about we how about you stop dropping or letting your opponents drop 70 on you in a half? That's rule number 1. The Grizzlies' advantage in the second half was that they made five more field goal attempts. They shot 19 of 25, 76% from 2, 6 of 15, 40% from 3 and 18 of 20 from the free throw line compared to the Pelicans' 9 for 10. The percentages were the same from the stripe. It's just that the volume doubled. So the Grizzlies had more of an advantage there. That's that's what that really means. In the paint, the Grizzlies outscored the Pelicans 38 to 30, and then on the fast break, had an advantage of 11 to 4. In points off turnovers, an advantage of 18 to 8. So even in the miscellaneous categories, the Grizzlies found their way back. And they're doing it without their, without their big rebounders in Steven Adams and Brandon Clark. They had Jaron Jackson Jr. and Xavier Tillman, but part of the reason why Memphis was struggling to start the season, obviously the John Moran suspension played a, a large role in that, but they haven't been able to rebound like they had a season ago where they were one of the best rebounding teams in the league because of those two big men, and because they don't have them, they're struggling. So when they're able to capitalize on all these miscellaneous categories, like I would say for the Mavs to do, and then you have Ja Morant on the floor, you give yourself a chance to win. And uh, they kind of gave themselves a chance to win. 
The Pelicans blew their seventh double-digit lead to lose the game. That ties the second most in the NBA with Miami and Washington. The most in the NBA is nine by the San Antonio Spurs. That's not the company you want to keep. For a team that has the aspirations that the New Orleans Pelicans have, you cannot be blowing these many leads. At the end of the season, you'll be looking at the standings like we should have won at least half of those games that we lost. So let's look at the superstar matchup between Zion Williamson and newly reinstated Ja Morant. Zion played 24 minutes and 35 seconds because of foul trouble. And I'll get into why that matters in one specific stat that I'll bring up. He only scored 13 points off, off of 5 of 12 shooting, 3 of 4 from the free throw line, 3 rebounds and 4 assists. He had a game low plus minus of minus 13. What does that mean? Why do I bring up plus minus and why do I signify how low it is across the board? When, I, when you hear plus minus, what I want you to understand is that it basically denotes how many points were scored in your team's favor while you were on the floor. So if it's minus 13, that means that while you were on the floor, your team scored 13 less points than when you were off the floor. However, like I just said, he was in foul trouble. And then I even have the time code here as to when that happened. The Pels were down 31 to 30 when Zion got his third foul with 743 remaining in the second quarter. Once he went to the bench, the Pelicans went on a 30 to 10 run to end the second quarter. That is not because Zion Williamson is not capable offensively. I want to be clear that he just missed out on benefiting in his plus minus from the 30 to 10 run because of foul trouble. The Pelicans offense has proven that when Zion is resting on the bench, they have a way where they can fill the void. They've proven that. And then when he comes back on the floor, he's a force to be reckoned with. So the Pelicans are really not to be trifled with offensively. And then defensively in the second quarter, that's also what led to that 20 point margin in the run because they were able to hold Memphis to such low shooting and then blow up on their side offensively. So if you hear somebody say, oh, he had a minus 13 plus minus, that's what I want you to retort with. However, Ja Morant, who had come back from a 25-game suspension after brandishing a gun on Instagram Live in May, which was after a previous incident where he brandished a gun on Instagram Live in a nightclub in Denver that led to an eight-game suspension near the end of last season. He's now back. He's looking to turn a new leaf. And he showed up and showed out in his debut. Played in 34 minutes and 46 seconds. Scored 34 points on 12 of 24 shooting, 10 of 12 from the free throw line, six rebounds, eight assists, two steals, a block, and a team high plus 12 plus minus. Right now, on the flip side, that means that the Memphis Grizzlies needed Ja Morant because when Ja was on the floor, the Grizzlies scored 12 more points than when he was off the floor. That's important. And then he ended the game with the buzzer-beating layup. So the Memphis Grizzlies now feel like they have some life, which is good for them. It's at the expense of the Pelicans because they let another one get away. 
And so because this has happened over and over, if it were one time, that'd be one thing because Ja Morant is Ja Morant and it's good to see him back in the league. It's another thing when you've let this happen seven times now and we're not even in to the end of the calendar year. We're just past the quarter mark in in the season. And seven of those games have now been blown after a double-digit lead. I think the Pelicans know this more than anyone, that you can't win games this way, obviously, because you've blown the lead. But it has to become something that they focus on from this point on, because there is no margin for error, especially in a tight Western Conference. Let's transition, though, to the Oklahoma City Thunder, a team who has been successful in the West all season long. Shea Gilgis-Alexander had a game winner of his own against the Denver Nuggets. December 16th in Denver, Shea scored 25 points on 9 of 20 shooting, 7 of 8 from the free throw line, 6 rebounds, 8 assists, and 2 steals, including 11 points in the fourth quarter and a game-winning shot with about a second remaining. To supplement that, Chet Holmgren scored 17 points, 6 of 12 from the floor, 4 of 6 from the free throw line, 11 rebounds, and a career-high 8 blocks. The Thunder, as a team, had 9. Chet was 2 blocks shy of becoming the 4th rookie in NBA history with a points, rebounds, blocks, triple-double. It would have been the sixth instance because David Robinson had three such games as a rookie. And he would have been the first rookie since David Robinson of the San Antonio Spurs when he did it back-to-back on February 20th and 23rd, 1990. So it's been a while. And then Jalen Williams, J-Dub Jalen Williams, scored 24 points on 11 of 20 shooting, three assists, and a steal. He had eight points in the fourth quarter alone. That's a third of his points all in one frame. And he's now scored in double figures in all but one game this season. The Thunder as a team against the Nuggets are led by that three-headed monster of SGA, Chet, and J-Dub. They brought the Thunder back from down eight points with 3.33 to go. The Thunder went on a 15-6 run with just those three players scoring. That's how crazy this team is. In the second half, SGA had 18, J-Dub had 16, and Chet had 12. In points off turnovers, OKC had an advantage of 10-2. In the paint, the Thunder had an advantage 20-12. They had 64 paint points for the game. That's the second most this season. So they're playing to their strengths. The Thunder will now host the Clippers and the Lakers. And to me, their defense, their length, their ability to score easy baskets with points off turnovers and fast break points, that will help them win both of these matchups. The Lakers are not as good in outside shooting as the Clippers are because they primarily score in the paint with LeBron and AD. They do have shooters, though, so the Thunder will have to be present and tight on defense. When they play the Clippers, though, they've got to deal with Russell Westbrook. He's returning to OKC. He guarded Luka Doncic really well in Dallas. As I said, he denied the ball and just stayed right on his hip, and so 
Shay does move around a lot faster than Luca. He's probably the best complement to Russell Westbrook in terms of energy. So that's going to be a matchup that we're going to love to see. SJ's got to be ready for him. Chet Holmgren, the big man, has has to be ready for Davidza Zubats and Anthony Davis in order to help the Thunder excel in those matchups. So that's something to look forward to across the next week. Before we go, we got one more segment, and we're going to preview the greatest day in the NBA. That's Christmas. And we'll talk about some upcoming matchups throughout the rest of the week. Next. All right, let's preview the Christmas Day slate in the NBA. This is Monday, December 25th. It's going to start with the Bucks of Milwaukee and the Knicks of New York. This is going to be their second of two games in New York City. This game will air at 12 Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on ESPN. That will be followed by the Golden State Warriors and the Denver Nuggets at 2.30 Eastern, 1.30 Central on ABC, followed by the Greatest rivalry in the NBA, the Boston Celtics and the Los Angeles Lakers at 5 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Central on on ABC. Then the Philadelphia 76ers will play the Miami Heat at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central on ESPN. And to finish it off, the Dallas Mavericks will play the Phoenix Suns in Phoenix at 10.30 p.m. Eastern, 9.30 p.m. Central on ESPN. Now that we are close to the end of the calendar year, the NBA has opened up all-star voting. So you can go to nba.com, sign in with your NBA ID, go on the NBA app, and vote for your favorite all-stars. Luca, Shea, I'd say they deserve it, right? I was not asked by the NBA to put this in the show. I'm just saying this because I'm an NBA fan, just like everyone else. So go out there, find a way to vote, vote every day if you can, and uh, make your voice heard because the fan vote matters. So next week, we will recap week nine and ring in the new year. We'll also review some of these Christmas games if they're you know, up to snuff. Next week will be the 10th episode of The Control Room, and that's how we'll close out the calendar year before we start in January, and I'm also going to talk about how the uh, Cowboys lost to the Buffalo Bills, although I don't want to talk about that that much. It was quite a beatdown. Dallas will visit Miami to try to bounce back from that loss. At the same time, though, Philadelphia did lose to Seattle. So both teams are now 10-4 and at the top of the NFC East. I'm not sure if either of these teams can beat San Francisco because San Francisco already bludgeoned both of these teams in the regular season. But for them to have a chance, they're going to have to push off that matchup until the NFC Championship game. That's their best shot at advancing further than where the Cowboys have been in the past. So for now, the Cowboys need to focus on the Miami Dolphins 
and win out because they've got Miami, they've got Detroit. And if they win out, then eventually the tiebreakers will start to really play a role. Especially now that Philadelphia has lost an NFC game, just like Dallas has lost an NFC game. Uh, The Philadelphia Eagles lost to Seattle. The Dallas Cowboys lost to Arizona. They've lost to an AFC team now. So that's going to be a fight to the finish. It always seems to be when it comes to the NFC East. It's just something to look forward to going into the weekend and the weeks beyond. Let's look at the upcoming schedule, the national NBA tip-off. Thursday, December 21st, the Lakers will play the Timberwolves on NBA TV at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central. And then Friday, December 22nd, the Denver Nuggets will play the Brooklyn Nets at 7.30, 6.30 Central on NBA TV, followed by the Wizards and the Warriors. Jordan Poole will make his return to San Francisco. At 10.9 Central on ESPN. Then Saturday, December 23rd, the Bucks will play the first of two games against the Knicks in Madison Square Garden, 12.30, 11.30 a.m. Central. 12.30 p.m. Eastern, 11.30 a.m. Central on NBA TV. And then on local television, Thursday, December 21st, the Pelicans will visit the Cavaliers at 7.30, 6.30 Central on Valley Sports New Orleans and Valley Sports Ohio. Then the Clippers will play the Thunder at 8.7 Central on Valley Sports SoCal and Valley Sports Oklahoma. Friday, December 22nd, the Mavericks will play the Rockets at 8.7 Central on Valley Sports Southwest and the Space City Home Network. And then Saturday, December 23rd, the Houston Rockets will play the New Orleans Pelicans at 8-7 Central on Space City Home Network and Valley Sports New Orleans. The Lakers will play the Thunder at 8-7 Central on Spectrum Sportsnet and Valley Sports Oklahoma. And then the Spurs will visit the Mavs in a game where Luka could cross 10,000 points at 8-30-7-30 Central. In the San Antonio area, it'll be on KENS for English and then KNIC for Spanish. And it will also air on Valley Sports Southwest in the Dallas area. So that's it for me. Thank you guys for watching. We're nine episodes in and doing great. I'm enjoying all of you that are downloading and watching and listening to every single episode. I will catch you guys in the next one, which will be our last one of 2023 before we get into 2024. Thank you guys again. I'm your host, Israel, signing off.